and making a difference every day. Welcome to the Animal Care and Welfare Podcast, iBuzz, where we combine the science and practice of animal welfare in a fun and engaging way, where we answer questions, find solutions, discuss tools, and achieve results, all for happy animals and people. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and this podcast is brought to you by Animal Concepts, and the Practical Animal Welfare Science Membership Experience. Let's buzz. Okay, today I am joined by Professor Franz de Baal, who is going to be on the podcast today with us, talking about his research, about all the work that he's been doing on animal cognition, on animal behavior, and everything else over his decades and decades of career. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be there. Yes. So most of the podcast will be in English. We might switch to a Dutch question at the end because, of course, a lot of the Dutch listeners are like, you know, of course, big fans because both of us are from the Netherlands. But yes, you have actually retired in August, but you seem as busy as ever. So what are you working on at the moment? I'm working on a new book. The last book was about uh, was Mama's Last Hug about emotions of animals and humans, and now I'm writing a book about gender. About gender, okay, in yeah. general, gender in in all kinds of animals. Yeah, I thought um, I was going to pick a topic that was not controversial, <laughs> like gender. <laughs> and all the primates have, of course, gender differences between males and females. And um, or as we usually call it, sex differences, and uh, just comparing them with humans. I think people have a very simplistic view of of the primates. They think the primates all run by a male boss who keeps everyone under control, including all the females. That's not really how most primate groups work, you know, because many primate groups are basically female groups in which the males immigrate. They come in and they go out. Uh, so it's more it's it's much more complex than people think right okay so that will be a very interesting book and when when is it going to come out do you think well given the coronavirus i'm uh, speeding up my writing basically <laughs> but uh, it will take a, at least a year two years i would say yeah Fantastic. It's going to be a very, very interesting topic. I already look forward to reading uh, your next book. Now, talking about differences, because, of course, we have lots of different questions. Um, and, but as we're talking about differences, one of the things that a lot of people wonder about is why is there such a behavioral difference between bonobos and chimpanzees? And, and in specifically, you know, how species-specific that is. Like, how much does it yeah. deviate between uh, the individuals within the species. Yeah, and, and in with regards to gender, that's one of the most interesting ones actually, because the bonobo society is dominated by females and the chimpanzee society clearly dominated by males. And, and both of them are our closest relatives. So we're exactly equally close. And 
there are many people like many anthropologists who like to keep the bonobos out of the story because they have invested so much time and energy into stressing the violent nature of humans and the male dominance and they, they always focus on the males and they don't know what to do with the bonobos and so the, the bonobos are too peaceful and too sexy for them and so they keep them out um, but the bonobos are exactly equally relevant and, and we don't know exactly why the bonobos are so different my guess is that uh, it's ecological is that they live in a forest that has more resources and so they can travel together rather than spreading out like chimpanzees need to spread out over the forest in order to get enough to eat. Otherwise they compete too much and the bonobos can stick together and they, for example, the females travel together and they, they build their nests at night in trees that are adjacent to each other. So they sleep in similar places. And uh, as a result of that togetherness that they have, which the chimps have much less of, uh, the females have stronger ties and have managed to dominate the males. They do so collectively. They, an individual female bonobo is not dominant over a male bonobo. It's, it's the collectivity of the females that is dominant. Right. And so as you're talking about, you know, similarities or differences, is that like we're always learning about animals, but also that education has often, you know, been the reflection of how we culturally see ourselves. And in your work, you know, a big part of that has been exposing that reflection. And mm -hmm. as you have been studying and researching, how has your view of animals changed throughout your career? Well, I've always felt very attracted to animals. Otherwise, I couldn't have had my career, I think. I, I really like animals. And, uh, and I like all of them. Um, but, um, yeah, I, th I think... I was raised in uh, the European tradition of animal behavior, which, um, which was much more biological than the American tradition. In, in the US, we had the behaviorists like Skinner, who were thinking in terms of very simple learning processes, uh, like the rats in the Skinner box, basically. Uh, and the Europeans, the biologists, were thinking more in terms of instincts, like animals have natural tendencies that serve them. And so a much more biological view. And in that biological view, built into it is, of course, the continuity between humans and other species. Uh, so even though the European ethologists had a very simplistic view of animals, in my view, uh, with the instinct business, um, at least we were biologists and we were thinking in terms of humans or animals too. And so that's something that I clearly inherited from uh, the European ethologist, that idea is that we are animals. If they have instincts, we have instincts. Um, and that, um, uh, that drawing a sharp line between the two is really not possible. Uh, we, we think all these processes are very similar, even between plants and animals. Of course, plants have DNA just like animals have. Uh, and uh, So everything in nature is connected one way or another. Yes, and, and you said already just now, you know, this simplistic view of instinct. And of course, in many of your books, you write or in your, in your talks, you talk and write about, you know, the emotional lives of animals and, and rational lives of animals. And of course, you have started your career studying chimpanzees. Um, but you also write, you know, that and note that horses and rats have facial expressions that are as expressive, uh, expressive as those of primates. 
-hmm. And I was just wondering that, do you think that if you would have started studying rats for decades ago, as intently as you have studied chimpanzees, would you come to many of the same conclusions today about emotional lives of animals? I think so, yeah. It, actually, as a student, I did work with rats, and I even had some rats as pets in my student dorm. So uh, I, I'm a big admirer of rats. I think rats are very interesting and very social animals. Uh, so yeah, I think all animals have these tendencies, uh, facial expressions. The horses are really remarkable. The horses have about as many expressions, I think, as the, as the primates do. And so um, I don't see fundamental differences there necessarily. I do think the primates, especially the apes, they have, uh, cognitively, they are much more advanced. So, so they have a more complex cognition than the other species. But in terms of the emotions, I, I think I see all of the same sort of emotions. So my view of the emotions is that we humans don't have unique, uniquely human emotions, even though that's often claimed that we have a whole bunch of them that you don't find in other species. I think all of the emotions that we have, one way or another, you're going to find back in other species. And I look at the emotions a bit like organs in a body. I, I don't have any organ in my body that you don't find in a dog or, or even in a frog. I have, we have kidneys and, and lungs and brains and hearts. And all of that equipment is found in other species. And in the same way, I think there are no human emotions that are completely disconnected from animal emotions. Uh, and even though in some cases they are a bit more sophisticated or they are applied under a wider range of circumstances, they are not fundamentally different. No. And so, of course, emotions is a topic that is often, you know, con contentious or people find it uncomfortable to talk, especially about positive emotions in animals. And it seems more common and, and well accepted to talk about negative emotions in animals. And I remember reading an interview where you said that rationality could not even exist without emotions, as there would be no reason to think without anything if you were not emotionally interested. So yeah. pure reason is pure fiction, read Damasio, read whom. And could you talk a little bit about reasons and emotions and whom and Damasio for people who are not familiar with this line of thinking and these yeah, if, if you take people who are emotionally aloof or indifferent, and they exist, there are patients who, who have very few emotions or basically no emotions, they cannot even think through a problem because they have no reason to think through the problem. They cannot make decisions because decisions always depend on a push this way or a push that way. And so, and these pushes come from our emotions. So even our most important decisions, like uh, one of the most important ones is who you're going to marry. Uh, we, we like to think of ourselves as rational beings who take rational decisions, but who you're going to marry is really not a rational decision. That's an emotional decision. So the, the most important decisions that we make are driven by emotions. Uh, and without the emotions, and that's what Damasio says in his books, he's a neuroscientist who says that Without the emotions, we cannot even reason or think because we have no reason to, uh, to be interested in the problem at all. So the emotions are absolutely essential for all the decision-making that we do. And the reluctance that people have to talk about animal emotions is often, in my view, misguided. It, it's, it's driven by the idea that 
with animals we need to be standoffish we need to make some distance we don't know what they feel uh, and as a result we should not talk about their emotions we should only talk about their behavior that was after all the thinking of the behaviorists that's why we call them behaviorists is they said don't talk about internal processes only talk about what you can see and i have trouble with that because uh, I'm, I make a distinction in my work between feelings and emotions. The feelings of animals, feelings are private states. Uh, the feelings of animals I cannot know. I can, I can guess, and, and I, my guess is that they are often very similar to our feelings, but I cannot know them. And, and I have that same problem actually with human feelings. Yeah. You can describe me that you felt sad at a particular funeral or whatever, I still don't know what you mean because I don't know if your sadness is like my sadness. So feelings are very hard to know because feelings are states inside of yourself that you're conscious of, and that's all they are. Emotions are expressed in the body. The emotions of animals are clearly visible. They are expressed in, in, in sound of the voice, in expressions, in body postures, also expressed in blood pressure, heart rate, temperature, and so on. And so they are always expressed in the body. And if, for example, someone says, I was very emotional and nothing happened to his or her body, you would be suspicious. That that's almost not possible that someone is very emotional without any, any bodily affection. So uh, the emotions can clearly be measured and, and are outwardly and inwardly visible. Uh, and that's what we do nowadays, of course. The neuroscientists measure emotions in the brain, in rats and all sorts of animals. And so we now have a science of the emotions uh, that is based on, on these observations. Yes. And just before in, in here in the podcast, you talked about, you know, challenging the ideas about capacities that different animals have in you certainly challenge the idea that humans are the only creatures with the capacity to love and hate and have shame and guilt or disgust or uh, empathy. Could you share us, because you're an amazing storyteller and writer, could you maybe share a few stories about things that you have seen with the animals that, that you've studied, that you have been close to, to illustrate some of these, these capacities in, in chimpanzees or other animals? Yeah, um, the first one, and that was when I was still a student in the Netherlands. It was it was reconciliation, as I called it. Uh, I, that was in a time that everyone studied aggressive behavior, and I I was given the task to study aggression in chimpanzees. And what happened one day was that um, we had an enormous fight in the chimpanzee colony at the Arnhem Zoo, and um, I followed that whole fight and. On the same day in the afternoon, so several hours later, there was a whole pandemonium among the chimps. They were all hooting and embracing each other and standing around two chimps who were embracing each other. And I had no clue what was going on. And when I biked home that same night, it all of a sudden, sudden struck me that the same two chimps who had been embracing each other in the middle of that were the same two chimps who had had the fight in the morning. And so I thought, could it be that these guys were reconciling and that the whole group was excited by it? Uh, and, and since that day, 
I've seen hundreds or thousands of reconciliations because it's actually a very common pattern in the primates. And, and so when I started to study reconciliation behavior and found that in chimpanzees about half the fights are reconciled within 15 minutes or so, uh, with kissing and embracing. And, and in bonobos, for example, they do it with sex, so they reconcile sexual, sexually. So, so when I started to, to report on that, initially people were extremely skeptical because reconciliation was such a human term and such a human process. Uh, and we associated with forgiveness and so on. And so people were not ready to accept it. But now we have all these reports. It's not just in the primates. We have reports of reconciliation in dolphins and in wolves and in elephants. All sorts of animals do it. Uh, and, and it's actually very logical. We now consider it extremely logical that they do it because they have societies for a reason. They live in groups for a reason. The, the group gives them many benefits. And so if there's a fight in the group, uh, the, there needs to be a repair mechanism to make uh, to make the relationships um, last longer than that fight. And so uh, we now consider it actually very uh, logical behavior. But in the beginning, there was an enormous amount of resistance because of the human connotations. And this is something that I've seen many times over my life, is that if you use a term that we normally apply for human relations, like let's say jealousy or empathy or love and so on, um, people, uh, the first reaction of people is, um, sh should you use this kind of terminology? Because it implies continuity and, and there is a, a strong resistance to the idea of continuity. Yes, absolutely. I think this is so core and, and, and it's really interesting because we have, I have a few more questions specifically also for, you know, coming from me working in animal care and welfare and I know many of the other professionals and you're talking about, you know, the capacities for this or that, like love or empathy. And one of the, the topics that is extremely interesting for us right now also is the topic of grief. And you mm -hmm. have written about, you know, chimpanzees and other animals having gestures, such as touching and grooming the body of a deceased family or friend. And certainly in many zoos um, and sanctuaries where chimpanzees, but also other animals are losing friends and family members. We're really looking at asking questions, in what way should we facilitate and allow for moments of them to be together? Or because we often also are concerned about, you know, wanting to do a, a necropsy to try and understand what might have happened. Um, but what are your thoughts and feelings on mourning and grief in animals or in specific for, for great apes? Maybe. Yeah, so grief, yeah. grief, I look at as the flip side of attachment. Attachment is, of course, visible in all the, all the mammals, also in birds. It can get very attached to their mating partner, for example. So as soon as you have attachment, when that attachment is broken by death, you get some process of uh, usually animals get depressed. Some animals stop eating. Some, some birds I've had, I, I used to have tame jackdaws and they were bonded in a pair and one of them flew away or escaped or whatever happened to the, that one. Uh, and the other one kept calling for two weeks and looking at the sky and then died. It didn't eat all that time. So I think those are animals can get very affected. And in the chimpanzees, typically when one of the chimpanzees in the colony dies, 
um, the other chimps also stop eating or are very affected by it. At least some of them are, maybe not all of them, but some of them are very affected by it. And so the, the grieving process, I think zoos and, and people who keep animals, they need to respect it in the sense that in humans, we call it closure. The animals also need closure. They need to understand what happened to the other one instead of just taking the body away and removing it. I think it is a good idea to have them inspect it and see it. So for example, when uh, chimpanzee mama died at the Arnhem Zoo, uh, I described what happened is because the zoo decided, and I thought this was great that they did that, they decided to give the chimpanzees access to the body for, uh, I think for at least a day. And so uh, the chimpanzees came to visit the body and inspect it and testing it out. It's something that wild chimpanzees also do. They, they sometimes even the males, they will jump on a body uh, of, of a dead con specific. And so uh, the other ones check out the body and, and inspect it and groom it and sit by it. Uh, and I think that's an important part of the process of understanding what happened. Uh, to that individual and what but I also find interesting is that some animals like chimpanzees they have an understanding of the finality of it they they understand that once this has happened you are dead and you're laying there uh, that you will not come back they, they that's the reason why they're so affected if they had the idea that you could come back they wouldn't be so affected so they're very uh, affected by the body of somebody um, and have some understanding that death death is irreversible. Yes, and I think it's really like you say, you know, more and more zoos and sanctuaries and other facilities that are caring for animals of all kinds are really, you know, starting to take this more and more serious and in consideration and really, yeah, having animals have the opportunity to, yeah, like you say, get closure. And, but mm -hmm. of course it also then, you know, often, I think for people, what at least what I find in my job is that um, people speak very freely about their the animals they care for, the animals that they love, the the bonds that they have with the animals. But when we start to question or ask more specific questions about, you know, what are animals feeling or what might they be experiencing, there is still this really really big um, wall and this this fear of anthropomorphism. And of course, you have been writing and speaking about that as well and one of the things you say is that you don't think it's you know such a big deal between species that are close uh, to us and we talk about anthropod denial yeah. but of course as an, as animal care professionals we are concerned about this and and in what ways can you know we use it and and of course gordon burkhardt for example has written about critical anthropomorphism and so on but if you could speak on the gradient on how it influences caring for animals or ourselves or what are like the good or the bads or the uglies of the anthropomorphism, could you say something about that? Yeah, anthropomorphism, the reason people, especially the, the animal care professionals, but also uh, scientists are so reluctant to be anthropomorphic is because they have been hit over the head many times by scientists who say, you cannot use these words. Uh, so for example, uh, when, when I started studying reconciliation behavior, uh, they, they said you should call it post-conflict behavior. And when I said they kiss and embrace after a fight, they said you should call it mouth-to-mouth -mouth contact. And so they wanted to clean the language of everything that resembles human language 
to, to have a terminology basically for animals that is separate from the terminology we have for humans. And I think that is total nonsense. In the same way that the hand of a chimpanzee is not like a front paw or something or a front leg, the hand is really a hand, has the same bones in it as the human hand and has, is structurally extremely similar to the human hand. And the two are of course related. We are related to chimps. That's why our hands are similar to their hands. We have to call it a hand instead of a front paw. And so we, we need to use human language for human-like characteristics, especially in animals that are close to us because they share an evolutionary background with us. And there's, there's really no reason to be reluctant about it. Now, when you get to the emotions, there is the problem that you don't know exactly. Uh, it's not like a hand. It's, it's, it's not always sure that you're looking at the same thing as in humans. And so I can understand that people are a bit more uh, guarded when they do that, but in general, I don't think anthropomorphism is as bad as it sounds. And so I, I invented the term anthropodenial as a sort of the alternative view, uh, because anthropodenial is that you deny the connection between human and animal behavior, and you deny the connection between human psychology and animal psychology. And, and I think a lot of science, especially in philosophy, uh, in anthropology, in parts of psychology, a lot of science is in anthropodenial, in the sense that they have trouble accepting that we humans are animals like other animals, and that you can make all these connections between our behavior and their behavior. Yes, and I think what is very interesting, also like looking at the animal welfare domain, is that we are a lot more comfortable, like if we think about the five freedoms and you know the absence of anxiety and fear, we are very comfortable to actually, you know, use these types of terminology and words. But then when we now moving into obviously the more contemporary way of looking at animals and holistic approaches of positive welfare states and so on, we start to put, you know, you see people do like air brackets when they talk about happy, um, but no uh, one does, does air brackets when they talk about, you know, others, uh, more negative yeah. states that we're more comfortable with. So I, I agree with you that it's, and, and in science writing also, you see people, of course, like you say, it's important that we have, you know, maybe more guarding for particular things that we're not, but you see things like, you know, states like, you know, so it's, it's also hard to write. And I know in my own scientific writing, even words like using the word he and she, I've had, you know, um, papers returned where people said, you have to use it. Um, so, oh, and I think, yeah. right, that's the other interesting part is that we are talking about, you know, living beings, uh, but we cannot use he and she. So uh, that's sad. That's, that's weird to yes. me because, because the sex of an individual is important for the story. Absolutely. Uh, to, yeah. to understand what happened between individuals because males and females do have different behaviors. So that, that seems odd to me. But, but there is a long yeah. tradition. It's so strange that we are allowed to talk about the negative side of animals. Uh, so talking about aggressiveness and the violence and the competition between them and uh, all of that is perfectly fine. And to say this, this male has a rival uh, and this female has a rival, we can say these things. But if you say this male has a friend or this female has a friend, all of a sudden everyone jumps on you because you're not supposed to use this kind of terminology. And that's so weird. It, it goes back to this long tradition of uh, the, the animal kingdom 
was one of struggle for existence, so to speak, is sort of a, an, a, an old Darwinian view, basically, not necessarily the view of Darwin himself, but the view that everything in the animal kingdom is based on competition, and uh, we are basically the only species that has friendships and love and attachment and empathy and so on. And so if you use the positive terminology, people frown at it. I think that is total nonsense. I think we have uh, similarities in both domains, both on the negative side and the positive side. Yes, and I think this is why it's so positive that so many you know, good zoos and but also aquariums and sanctuaries and wildlife centers today, when animals maybe have to move from one facility to another, they are considering their friends, they're considering their families, and they are, um, you know, it's not just the individual, but they're looking at, okay, if we're concerned with the individual's well-being, uh, who matters to them? Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, those things are so interesting because, you know, like you say, before people, you know, would frown at friends or all those types of, of terms that now many of us are very comfortable with uh, using. And of course, yeah. there's uh, lots and lots of stories, especially people who care for animals uh, or people that have researched animals, you know, of friendships between animals, uh, whether <laughs> the same species or not. So, um, mm -hmm. and, and what I really liked in, in, the, in your last book, in Mama's Last Hug, is that you really... Um, you know, describe the different perspectives of um, emotional connection to other uh, animals and also how it influences our perceptions of the animals uh, that we're caring for. And one of the questions that came up um, talking to one of my friends was whether you intended for people who care for animals to reflect on that care or on that responsibility. Uh, like through the reading, but or was that like an unintended consequence of like, you know, no, really well, talking I, about all all those aspects? I, I usually don't have uh, animal care professionals in mind when I write my books, um, even though I meet them all the time. I, I often visit zoos. I just the most recent one was I visited the Jacksonville Zoo, uh, and and had a tour with the animal caretakers. I'm always impressed by. Um, the animal care staff, and I know how close they are to their animals, and especially at the moment with the coronavirus, I, I know that they are going to the zoo uh, to care for their animals and, uh, and are worried because the virus probably can jump from humans to apes, it's very likely, and uh, we don't know that yet, but um, animal care professionals are very close to their animals. And yes, they, they have an informal way of talking about their, uh, their animals, with each other that is of course uh, full of the kind of terminology of loving and friendship and and rivalry and whatever they they see but then as soon as they talk to the public or talk to a scientist such as myself they become very guarded about these things and i can notice that of course uh, they have learned uh, to use a different terminology uh, outside their little circle uh, but still i think they they are very important representatives to the public because the public can immediately notice if someone is close to their tiger or whatever they they're working with uh, and and knows all the details of their behavior and and i think people are always very impressed to hear that these uh, animal care staff that um, they uh, know all the ins and outs of the animals they work with yes and you have like you said you've worked in zoos and done research in zoos and and of course, in the in the Yerkes Primate Center, and of course, are very familiar with care for 
chimpanzees and other primates. And I wonder whether you have um, ideas of how primates, people who care for primates should move forward in you know, caring for the animals, whether you have ideas on what could we do to make it even better for primates or are there particular non-negotiables that we should be considering? Um, yeah. I don't know if the, the animal care staff is, is not always involved in the design of the enclosures, I notice. Uh, and sometimes the design is even made by architects who don't know anything about animals. That, that happens also. Uh, I, the la last few times that I've been at zoos, um, I, I've been thinking about the possibility of animals to hide themselves from the public. Uh, th this came up also recently. I don't know if you've seen that... Uh, there were two pandas, I, I don't know which zoo that was, there were two pandas who had never mated in 10 right. years. Yes. And all of us, was it the National Zoo or where was this? I think uh, I was, it was Ocean Park, if I believe. Yeah, I'm they had never mated in 10 years and now that right. the public is gone, uh, all of a sudden they did. And uh, so that indicates a little bit that the public also inhibits some behavior among these animals and they, they are affected by their presence. And of course, we've done many studies on this uh, and, and people sometimes say that the presence of the public is not that important. But I think it is important in the design at zoos to take into account that, that there need to be areas uh, out of sight of the public where, where the animals can withdraw if they want to. Uh, and, and I know that the zoos are always a bit worried about that because then the animals are not on display. But I think that's something you can explain to the public to why why they're not always visible. Uh, so that's one of the one of the areas I think where things could be improved at zoos is uh, give the animals more space, and that is of course a, a movement that has already been happening for a long time. Have fewer species, but give each one more space, but also give them areas away from the public. Yes, absolutely. And I think the importance there also, like you say, you know, sometimes it can influence the animals and sometimes not. And we also now hear, of course, stories of animals who are really actively looking at where is the public, right? Because they are used to, the public uh -huh. is entertainment to them. And now that most zoos and aquariums are closed, they are, you know, they lack that. And But exactly, it's those questions that we need to ask. And especially the, the design of the environment so that animals can make choices of where mm -hmm. they want to be and where they want to go. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, you have, of course, done so many uh, different things with regards to research, but also the writing that you've done, different topics. And in the last few questions, I would like to focus a little bit on, on your writing and the storytelling that you do. And also... You know, like your books are full of stories, um, many that we actually emotionally resonate with. And, and your professor, uh, your mentor, Professor Jan van Hoof, who I've met a few times and heard speak, which is also a phenomenal storyteller. I wonder, you know, when you both get together, what does like an afternoon of two master storytellers together look like? <laughs> <laughs> when we get together, we we talk about his garden or the frogs in his pond or something, but uh, I don't think we're telling stories necessarily. Jan, Jan has a lot of good stories because when he was a kid, they had, they had apes in the house, even something that I never had uh, because he was born in a family that owned a zoo. And so they sometimes had to adopt uh, 
the cubs of, of lions or young chimpanzees or so. So as a, as a kid, he had all these uh, stories. Uh, my storytelling is, is mostly um, because if I, if I tell this, the story of, let's say, um, chimpanzee behavior in a scientific way, very quickly people lose interest in it. If I say um, generally males are more aggressive than females because they do this or they do that, people have no interest in that. And and I think you, you need to always come up with some observation that illustrates the point and then you can go to some generalization if you want to. Uh, but there's too many books about animal behavior that, that stay at, let's say, the scientific level. And I don't think people are particularly interested in hearing that. So I always, and since I have seen so many things in my life, um, so many direct observations of all sorts of things, and I always kept diaries of everything. So I've, I've never been satisfied just collecting the scientific data. I've always kept diaries where in the evening I would write something that I had seen that day. Uh, so I have tons of um, stories to tell. Yes, and that's absolutely, you know, clear from also, you know, this whole, um, yeah, so the accessibility of your books and also a play. And um, could you elaborate a little bit more on what you thought, what your thoughts are on what worked really well? Like you already said, you know, people lose easily interest and or some of the things that failed miserably or in what ways can scientists and academics you know, interpret their work for a broader audience. And also importantly, again, talking about um, animal care professionals, and I mean the caretakers to veterinarians, to get that science into practice. How can we do a better job of using that scientific knowledge into also making animal lives um, under human care better? Yeah, so, so that's actually two questions, I think. <laughs> the, Absolutely, you're right. <laughs> the first one about how to write um, for a popular audience, uh, it's very hard to say, but I think many scientists, when I see their popular writing, um, they still keep in their mind the, the audience of their colleagues. They're so used to talking to their colleagues, to give lectures to them, uh, to sit around the table with them. Uh, they write for the general audience while keeping all these colleagues in mind. And they zoom in on small differences of opinion between A and B and themselves and somebody else, or that they have an enemy who has a stupid opinion and they are, of course, have the smart opinion. Uh, and so they, they get into details of things that no one in the general public knows about or is interested in and that happens very often i think they 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 lack the capacity to to take these colleagues out of their mind and start thinking about people who have never seen a dolphin or a chimpanzee or a tiger uh, and explain things to them so i think that is one of the big problems in science writing is to get away from your jargon so the, so the terminology that we all use and familiar with move away from that and move away from the pity academic uh, conflicts that we have uh, between each other uh, uh, and and step over them uh, to address a, a general audience. Y your second question is what animal care professionals can learn from science and how they can use the science, so to speak. A good example of that is what happened with the bonobos in zoos. So 
the zoos have always had the tradition, of course, of moving males around. It's, if, if you want to avoid inbreeding among your animals, there's nothing easier than moving a bunch of males around um, because with one male, you're introducing new genes in a group, uh, whereas with one female, you're not doing that. And so the zoos have this long tradition of moving males around. And with the bonobos, this really didn't work well because the bonobo society is a female-dominated society where the, the, the young males are very dependent on their mom, even when they're fully adult, their social position depends on protection by their mother. Uh, and a male who's without his mother uh, has an enormous amount of trouble with the females. And so the zoos have learned from the field workers and the scientists that bonobo society is a female dominated society where males remain all their life dependent on their mother. Uh, in the wild, we know that the male rank order is determined by the rank order among the females. And so a, a high-ranking mother will have high-ranking sons, usually. And so the zoos have now, in the last 10 years or so, they have learned from this. And they have decided never to move a male on his own. If he's going to be moved, he's moving with his mom to another group. Uh, or um, he, he just stays in his group and you move females around. And so that is the lesson that they have learned from scientists. And, and it, I think it has solved a lot of the issues that we had. Yes, and I think it's so important also for scientists and you know people doing research and finding out about perhaps cognitive abilities, abstract concepts or other things that could be helpful for animal care professionals to make the care of the animals better. So if we know that they're capable of this, then how does that apply in, in our human animal interaction? So, and of course it's those bridges that also need to be built, right? Because not everybody is comfortable necessarily reading scientific material or making those translations. So I think it would be really beautiful if we have more and more collaborations and interpretations into the practical domain uh, from the science into the care aspects as well. So that, that's something that I see as something that could be very beneficial. Well, the good thing is that I, I've heard that um, ACA in the US here now is, is asking zoos to include scientists and researchers uh, in their plans for a zoo and, and they're thinking about the zoo. And of course, many zoos, for example, is the great apes, they have now set up touch screens so that the great apes can show their intelligence basically by teaching them uh, some very simple computer games and having them show that they can perform those on a touch screen. Uh, so the scientists need to get involved. There used to be a time where some zoos were very hostile to having scientists because scientists, of course, all, they bother the zoo sometimes because they ask for certain animals, animals to be held back for testing or something or they, uh, they have opinions about what the zoo is doing with the animals. And so they're sometimes seen as bothersome. But um, I think if you have respectful scientists who respect um, the animal care staff, um, uh, the, the collaboration between the two can be very good. I, I, I've also seen cases where uh, scientists come in and, and act as if they know everything. And that, of course, doesn't fly very well at the zoo because the, the people at the zoo have maybe a different knowledge, but very great knowledge. And so they then you get a sort of hostile relationship between the two. But I think the collaboration can be great. I, I've myself had the luck at the Arnhem Zoo that um, the director of the zoo, uh, Anton van Hoof, was the brother of Jan van Hoof. 
professor <laughs> that I had. And so there was a very good collaboration between the two and science was really welcomed at that zoo. And I think that can be very beneficial for a zoo to have scientists walking around and they have a very different kind of knowledge than the zoo has and to try to bring these two together. I think that's very important. Absolutely. And it's really, like you say, great that so many different zoos and aquariums today have scientists on staff uh, different mm -hmm. in different domains and have good collaborations with universities and other research facilities. So absolutely, yeah. that's really, really good. So in the last few questions, um, I really like how you freely talk about things like seeing art done by chimpanzees uh, or having a rain dance. Um, so I really like that. And, and you know, I, do you have some other uh, examples of forms of art, as you say, that you've seen um, with, with animals? Well, uh, there is natural art, of course. You, you have animals like the bowerbird who makes a nest uh, that he decorates with all sorts of little colored objects. Uh, so that's a sort of a, a natural artist. Uh, but there's also all these artificial things that we do with apes at zoos and having them paint. The most famous case was Congo, the, the chimpanzee who was owned by Desmond Morris. Desmond Morris, an author, a popular author, but also uh, himself a, an amateur painter. And so uh, he really appreciated was, uh, what Congo was doing and tested him out to see, for example, if Congo was in the middle of a painting and you would remove the painting from him, he would get very upset. So he had a, uh, he had a sense of finality. He, he needed to finish the painting. And once he was done, he would just let it go and you could take it away. Uh, and he, was, he did not care about it anymore. They, he did not have a sort of... Uh, permanent attachment to the painting. He could eat it, <laughs> so to speak. So um, uh, Desmond Morris describes all these things. I'm very interested in these artistic artistic um, capacities. I once visited uh, Watanabe in, in Japan who did experiments on birds. And he would, uh, in his bird lab, he would have starlings in a cage, for example, and they could hop from one perch to the other. And then he would, if, if he would sit on one perch, um, they would play Mozart to the starling, and if he would s sit on another perch, they would play Schoenberg to the starling. <laughs> and they noticed that the starling preferred Mozart very much over Schoenberg. They did that kind of studies, and, <laughs> and we have all these people now interested in music and rhythm in animals. Can you teach rhythm to a chimpanzee and so on? And I think that whole field is coming up of, of music appreciation in animals. Right. So... Yeah, it actually takes me to one of the questions on, you know, you, you predict that the coming years will see a surge in studies in animal emotions or appreciations of things. And what type of research would you like to see happen? Uh, I think there's, there's two areas. One is neuroscience. And uh, I hope we can move at some point to non-invasive neuroscience to, on animals, uh, maybe similar to what we do with humans, where we do the brain scanning on humans. Uh, and, and that is happening. People are now training animals like at Emory University, we're training dogs, for example, to sit still in the scanner. And then you can scan their brain. Nothing happens to the dog. The dog leaves very happy after that with its owner. Um, so if we can get non-invasive neuroscience going, uh, in some species at least, um, this will help us understand their cognition and emotions, I think. The, the other thing that needs to ha happen is more 
innovative experiments and, and many young scientists are working on that is creating new types of tests. We, we have, for example, these standards tests like the mirror test, the mirror mark test. You put a mark on an animal, you put them in front of a mirror and, and the apes pass this test. The monkeys usually don't pass this test. Uh, but that's a very limited way of looking at self-awareness. Uh, and it has been done a thousand of times with a thousand of species. Uh, but we need to develop new tests, new cognitive tests, uh, some of which may be applicable in uh, zoo environments, uh, some of which may be a bit more involved. But I think we need to start thinking about new kinds of testing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so you talk about close up chats that you had with Mama. <laughs> Can, yeah, and I, 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 li I like that. I'm like, okay, so, you know, when I did my master's, um, when I was asking caretakers, I said, okay, so how do you know, you know, your marmosets are, are doing well, they're having a good time. And, and many people said, you know, they have smiling eyes. And, and, and you just go wonder what that must look like, right? And now, of course, when you write, I have close up chats with mama. I'm like, okay, so what does that look like? What happens during these chats? Can you say something about that? Well, mama always liked to groom. Uh, um, she, she was what we call a grooming machine. And so uh, she, she really likes to, and she, and she likes to groom very detailed, like, like your eye wimpers or something like that. Or uh, chimpanzees have a very strong tendency to groom your injuries. If you have a little injury on your arm or your hand, they want to open that up, which is not really what I want them to do. Um, but um, yeah, so she wants to groom. And of course, when I mean a close-up chat, I'm the one chatting. She's not the one chatting. She may have a few grunts here and there. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and do some lip smacking or tooth clacking while she grooms, but uh, there's not a lot of opinion that comes out of her. Um, but uh, a close-up chat means basically that you have a close um, affiliative interaction, uh, which both of you enjoy and which is friendly. Uh, Mama always did that with me. She had a, she had a, a companion female, Kuif, who uh, in the beginning never liked me. She, I think partly because she was maybe jealous or she, was, she felt that I was too getting too close to her friend Mama. And so Kaif always tried to grab me or punch me or uh, try to assert herself because chimpanzees always like to be dominant over you. Uh, and that all changed when one day I, I taught Kaif how to bottle feed the baby. So Kaif had lost several of her own babies and one day uh, we had her adopt a baby and I taught her how to bottle feed uh, that baby, chimpanzee. And uh, since that day, since that adoption, which went very successful and uh, the baby survived all of it, uh, since that day, I'm, I'm the best friend of Kaif. And so Kaif was always very happy to see me. And so instead of me having just a chat with mama, uh, I, I, in her night cage, that night cage, she, she shared that night cage with Kaif. Kaif would also be very close to me and, and very friendly to me. So it was interesting how that whole event changed her attitude. And I've, I've always interpreted that as gratitude, is that Kaif was very grateful that finally she got a baby that she could raise uh, with our help and with the, the help of bottled milk uh, because she didn't have enough lactation of her own. Yes. And, and I think, you know, even like you say, obviously, you know, there's no chatting in the sense of, you know, having a conversation, but this, these using, being able to use these words like chatting, it has 
gives us some picture in our mind of how we are being together and enjoying each other's company in whatever way that might be words or no words so and, and i like that uh, those types of descriptions and we've talked a lot about animals um, that have been studied in zoos or of course also in the wild or in other research facilities and in your book you write that if you were uh, an animal that um, you know you would probably prefer to be held in a top zoo uh, than live freely in a place such as Borneo where the habitat is under threat and you know can you talk to us a little bit more about your thoughts and feelings on life in the wild and conservation Yes, the reason I said that, that I would prefer to be in a top zoo is that I think some people overestimate what they call freedom. Um, they say, why are, why are you keeping animals in zoos? They could be free. And uh, I think people overestimate freedom in the sense that they think freedom is happiness. Uh, but you know, animals that are free in the wild, they have a very tough life. They have parasites, they cannot get enough to eat. They have forest fires, they have enemies, of course. Um, and so the, the freedom is, um, is totally overestimated, I think. The, the, uh, and I would be happy probably to be a, a wild primate 100 years ago or 200 years ago. I think at that time, everything was probably still fine and maybe it would be better, certainly given the state of the zoos in those days, it would be better to be in the wild than in the zoo. But nowadays, um, if you look at, uh, for example, orangutans, we know that 100,000 orangutans disappeared from Borneo. Uh, basically half the population died in the forest fires and, and the shooting by the farmers, because as soon as these orangutans leave the forest, they end up at farms and they get shot by the farmers. Uh, so 100,000 orangutans died at Borneo. And so I was saying basically that if I were an orangutan, I'd rather be at a good zoo than um, at Borneo at this time. And, and I think there is a, there is a tendency to uh, overestimate what freedom means. Uh, and the zoos have a special function in all of this. I think they have a special function in educating the public about wild animals, which is their traditional function, um, but also uh, now to be involved in conservation and to, to take a more active role in the conservation of certain animals. Not just reintroducing animals because that's not always possible, but at least supporting um, field workers or conservationists in the field. Yes, absolutely. And so many, you know, like you say, top zoos are involved in, you know, conservation projects, supporting conservation projects in the wilds, but also supporting, you know, like sanctuaries like the, from the Pan-African Sanctuary Alliance, where, you know, medication, materials, uh, uniforms and everything and, and knowledge transmission uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, zoos are playing such a such a important role also there. Um, absolutely. So I have one final question for you. It's mm -hmm. been really really nice uh, hearing all the stories again. And but this might might be like a surprise one. It, we can completely skip it. But you, I'm sure you are aware of this um, IG Nobel Prize for like improbable research. Oh yeah. Yeah, and I was wondering if you would get this IG Nobel Prize, what would it be for? Of for improbable. I, I actually got one. It's called you the. Ig, you mean it's the Ig Nobel Prize? Yes. Oh, I yeah. didn't know that. Okay. I got one. I got one. Oh, I didn't I, know uh, that. Uh, in 2012, I think I got the Ig Nobel Prize. Yes. For for a study 
The title of the paper was uh, Faces and Behinds. And what we showed is that chimpanzees can recognize each other by their behind. And the way we did that is we, we, we had chimpanzees look at the touch screen and they would first see a, what was it again? They would first see a behind of a chimpanzee and then they would see two faces. One face is of the chimpanzee who has this, uh, the same individual uh, and the other one of a different chimpanzee. And they could match the, the two. They could, they could say which face belonged to that behind. And they could only do it with chimpanzees that they knew. If you showed them the same combination, but for chimps that they had never seen before, they could not do it. So it was based on their knowledge of these animals. Uh, it has never been done on humans. I'm not sure humans would be so great at it as the chimpanzees are. Uh, but we got um, uh, the Ig Nobel Prize for this. You did. Okay, excellent. Well, I didn't know that. I didn't find it when I was looking for it. So clearly yeah, something yeah. for me to uh, reassess uh, my research uh, <laughs> capabilities. <laughs> but uh, okay, that is excellent. That's such a great, uh, great last story in this podcast. So, you know, you've shared so many different stories and, and opinions and your research. Is there a final thought that you would like to share uh, with animal care professionals or with anybody who's listening to this podcast? Oh, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm a big fan of zoos. I know that um, people who work at zoos, they get a lot of abuse from certain segments of the population who hate them and say that zoos are like prisons. I think a good zoo is, is a, a major asset uh, and, um, in the US, for example, we know that 175 million people go to zoos every year. So it's an enormous uh, way of reaching the public. And uh, if it's done well, I know that many people go to the zoo just to walk around with their kids and eat some ice cream or something like that. But if at the same time you can grab these people and get them interested in animals and get them interested in nature and in conservation, uh, and educate them, um, th that is a very important task in society. And so I don't think um, the zoo professionals should get discouraged by the people who, who uh, hate zoos, because I think zoos have an enormous function. Great, thank you so much for coming onto this podcast. Of course, we will um, you know, put all the links to all your work and your books. And of course, we're very much looking forward to your new book, on gender that is going to come out uh, sometime in the next year. So yeah, thank you so much. And hopefully we'll uh, speak again uh, once your gender book is out. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Already the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Find us on your favorite platform and leave your comments and suggestions or go to the animal concepts website to send us your questions and feedback. We are so happy to answer them and address them in future podcasts. Animal Concepts is dedicated to helping you care for animals and yourself. Are you interested in quality animal care and welfare content, in actions and resources for you to be well while caring for animals? Then check out PAWS, the practical animal welfare science platform, which has webinars, science into practice case studies, private Facebook live sessions, and a lot of resources for you and the animals you care for. You can share your experiences and connect to animal care professionals and scientists from around the world.
In the meantime, take care of you and the animals and keep buzzing.